gracious Father, um, we sang so many great truths of you this morning um, that, that you are with us is really the theme of that. And so, Lord, as we look into your word now, um, I pray that we would gain what it is you want us to see from this and the assurance, Lord, that you lead your people, that you're with us and that you go with us, that you deliver us. Lord, thank you for uh, this book that Moses has written. And as Paul said, these things were written for our instruction. Thank you for giving it to us today. And uh, so, Lord, now be with us as we as we look into this marvelous story. Uh, Lord, um, make yourself known through your word to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So we're still in the section of Exodus where God delivers us. We're nearing the end of it. This is pretty much the last story. Then next week, there's a song about it. And then we begin the wilderness wandering. And so we're kind of in, moving into this transition phase, but we're still in, in the section about God delivering us. And when it comes to God delivering us, we need to stop and listen to Pastor Moses for a moment because Pastor Moses has some really good words for us right in the middle there. He tells us to fear not, to stand firm, and to see. And so that, that is the command. That is our role in our salvation. Fear not. Stand firm and see. That's what it is. And so as we go through the story of the, the Red Sea, um, that's what we're going to be encouraged to do. And, and we'll see in the end what the application of that is. Why do we do that? What's the result of those kind of things? So um, the story is really pretty straightforward. Um, not, not miraculous. I mean, straightforward as in God parts the sea and people walk through on dry ground. Straightforward, that kind of straightforward. But I mean, the telling of it is, is it's not really an elaborate telling of it. It's, it's Egypt goes after them. God parts the sea. They walk through. The sea crashes in on Egypt. The end. Um, Egypt loses. But there's some things in here that we need to look at. So what I want to do is kind of walk through the, the text and point out some of the, the points and then come back and say, well, how does this apply? What does this mean for us? So uh, to begin with, it says that um, Israel uh, is, is headed out. They've left Egypt. They're, they're heading out into the wilderness. Last week, you remember, God said, don't go the way of the Philistines. Don't take the shortcut, the straight direct route. Don't take Highway 14 to Santa Clarita. Take San Francisco Road. Go the, the long way around. So that was kind of what he told them. And so that's where we left them as they were out wandering. And now what God tells Moses is he's going to have him turn and go in front of Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. We know where none of those things are. That's why there's, again, no map. Does it matter where they are? Actually, the text gives us enough information of exactly what we need to know, which is this is out in the wilderness, and it's a bad place. They wind up in a really sticky place. So Paheroth is actually a very Egyptian name, and it could mean place of waters or place of hroth, or, or there's a couple of different interpretations. Not sure what it means, not sure where it is. Migdal, that's a good one. We know what that means. That's Hebrew for tower, and we don't have a clue where the tower was. So what is Pahiroth might be a city or it might be a marshy place. Um, Migdal would, might be a tower, a military outpost maybe, a, a place for them to, to cite what's going on. And in Baal Zephon, um, Baal is a Canaanite god. What's he doing here? So this is kind of a confusion as well as we're not sure where that would be, that there would be some outpost to Baal in this place. But the way that the rest of the text describes it is, it's, um, they're, they're stuck in the wilderness. They, they're led out into the wilderness in a way that they can't escape is what it says. So then the Red Sea. I always picture, you know, the, the biggest body of water available out there and, you know, that kind of thing. But honestly, we don't know where it's at. 
Um, no, not sure where that is. It's probably more technically the Reed Sea. And so that leads some people to say that it was kind of shallow and marshy. That's cool. God killed an entire army in a shallow, marshy body of water. <laughs> That's not miraculous at all. So wherever it was, actually, um, one of my, I didn't have him in, in seminary. One of the professors at, at my seminary um, is really big on the Exodus and Egyptology and all those kind of things. And he reported that they found a body of water with a bunch of wagon wheels at the center at the bottom, a bunch of chariot wheels. They have no business having chariot wheels at the bottom of this huge body of water. And so he thinks that might have been the Red Sea that they were talking of. Um, so there's a modern Red Sea, but that's probably not the one that was going on here. Whatever it is, look at where God leads them to. He leads them right into the wilderness, right to a sea, and stops. That's where they stop. And the reason he did that was because it would tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you've got a strategic advantage. So that's his, his plan, is he's going he's gonna to make Pharaoh think that he's got him. Um, they're wandering. The wilderness has shut them in. In other words, there's no way out, out for here. And so God does what he had done through the plagues. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He, he cemented Pharaoh in the direction that he was going to go, and that's where he's going to go. But he says, I will um, harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We're going to come back to that because I think that's really important. So, so pin that in the corkboard in your brain if you have one. Or I guess now it's electronic, so just put it in a, a file in there somewhere. So we're going to come back to that, but this is the situation now. God has led them into a place where the wilderness has hemmed them in, and Pharaoh has decided we're going after him. So he says that, uh, it, it says, in, starting in verse 5, Pharaoh was told that the people had fled. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. It, it's like he didn't notice. How could he not notice? After the Passover, he looked, Pharaoh, he looked at Moses and said, get out, leave now. So he knew they were leaving. So some of the critical scholars say, well, this is obviously a scene where the stories were, uh, various stories from different traditions were stitched together and they just didn't do a good job here. Yeah, there's really no evidence of it. Here's another explanation. What if Pharaoh thought that what Moses said was true? We want to go out into the wilderness for three days to worship our God. What if it's now the end of those three days and Pharaoh goes, wait, they're not coming back? I think that fits the story equally well. I don't think we have to say that this is a, a mistake in the thing. So Pharaoh is expecting them to go out in the wilderness, worship three days, and like an idiot, come on back. Come on back and be slaves again. So you go do your thing and then, then gladly walk back into Egypt. It's like, that's, not, that's never going to happen. And so now he finds out what he's done. He says, what have we done that we let them go from serving us? Why would we release them to begin with? We shouldn't have done this. So he gets his chariot ready and he took his, took his army with him and 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt and officers over them. So remember last week the discussion, how big was the group that left Egypt? If it was 5,000 people, that's a tremendous overkill. <laughs> that is sending the whole legions of the, the uh, Egyptian army after 5,000 people. Doesn't make any kind of sense. That's way overkill. If it is 2 million people, that's probably appropriate. That, that would be a military force that might be able to engage them. So again, I'm going to go with the bigger number. And the Lord, it says again, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he pursued the people. And it says that his chariot and his army with him, um, they overtook the people of Israel. Um, oh, but, well, I'm sorry, before that, 
before that, it says the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So this is where I also think this is probably that three day thing is they were going, we're not going back. And so they're just walking away. One of the things Dan uh, Stromberg brought up last week was when we talked about how they left in military array. Um, Dan's made a great observation. He said, this was not a chaotic group of people freaking out and running like mad. This was an orderly, let's leave. Let's get everybody together. Is everybody, okay, kids, you got your seatbelts on? We got, did you get the tickets? Okay, now let's leave. It wasn't just flee like mad. And so again, here's that picture of them walking away from Egypt defiantly. You have been broken, Pharaoh. You have no hold on us. So they go. They're just, they're just heading out. And it says that they overtook them and camped. Um, it, they overtook, the, oh, I'm sorry, and Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea. So that doesn't mean that the horses and the chariots overran them while they were camped at the sea. What it means is they took up, they caught up to them. There was a big lag between the two. And Pharaoh and his army eventually closed that gap, and now they're standing there and looking at, at the people of Israel and going, we got them. We have got them. They're stuck at the sea. There's no way out of this. We're just going to ride these chariots through and wipe them out. This is going to be the biggest massacre ever. We're going to be heroes. So that was the, the point. So when Pharaoh drew near and the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly. I don't think that's an unreasonable response. Put yourself in Israel's position. We're heading toward a sea. And on the other side, our escape route are the Egyptians coming after us. I think it would be natural. It would be foolish to not be afraid at that point. This is a scary situation, even if you're trusting in the Lord, because you don't know his mind. You don't know exactly what he's planning to do. And so they're afraid. Now, what happens with fear? That's a different question. There's a, there's a fear that is faith fear, where you're looking at your natural surroundings and it's, they're terrifying, but you're still calling out to the Lord. And then there's a fear where you're just like blind panic. Ah, I, I'm stuck. And so I think that's kind of where it's going because their response is not the best. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Can you think of a more sarcastic, a more ironic statement? What, when you think of Egypt today, what do you think of? Pyramids. And who's in pyramids? Dead people. It seems like every time they stick a spade in the sand in Egypt, they find another dead person buried. Are there not enough graves in Egypt? Yeah, there's tons of them. So that's the first little bit of irony. The second little bit of irony is you people want to go back to be slaves. How many slaves do you think they built pyramids for? How many slaves do you think they put in beautiful sarcophagus and, and stuck in the desert? Not Slaves get chucked in a hole. So what are you talking about? They're, they're, they're being really sarcastic about this. Isn't it, wouldn't it have been better, basically, for us to die in Egypt? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? So that's kind of where they're at, is, is we should have died there. Why are you dragging us all the way out here to kill us? And they're going to think this a couple of more times. So then it gets worse. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? These people honestly believe that the best in life that, that they could have is to be slaves. They, that is the identity that they've adopted, is they think they're slaves. At least when we were slaves in Egypt, we'd be alive. Now we're going to be dead free people. I, I don't see the win here. That's, that's kind of their approach. It would be better for us to serve them to die, than to die in the wilderness. That's just 
a horrible position to be in. That's a fear that is not based on faith. That's a fear that just looks at the circumstances and goes no further. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and be slaves rather than come out here and die because there's no third option. Now Pastor Moses kicks in and Pastor Moses has got some words for him. The first thing he says is fear not. That is something that the Bible says over and over and over again is fear not. It is natural, it is normal for us to fear. It's natural and normal for us to assess our situation only with these earthly eyes and go, I'm terrified. Because the reality is we're not powerful. We tend to think we are. Um, how well are we doing with forest fires out here? Not great. How good did the East Coast do with the hurricanes? Not great. We are not as all-powerful as we think we are. So our natural response is to fear this world that we live in because it's terrifying. There's some scary stuff out there. But Moses says, first, the, the fear of faith is fear not. Don't be afraid. Second of all, stand firm. It looks terrifying. It looks like everything is, is waged against you. The fear of faith says stand firm. Doesn't say don't stop, you know, stop that shaking. Don't you, don't you be afraid. It says fear not, have confidence, stand firm, don't go running. And then finally, see the salvation of the Lord. So we saw this in, in the, um, the plagues, didn't we? What was Israel's role in all of the plagues? Nothing. They just sat. They didn't get mentioned. They didn't have to do anything. It wasn't until the Passover that they actually did something. And that whole thing was, yeah, splash some blood and eat a meal. That was their role in their salvation. The same thing here. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. And, and that is the fear of faith, is to say, we can't do anything here. We may have two million people, but we are not two million people armed for battle, ready to fight off the most advanced army in the world. They have chariots. We're standing here on foot. We're toast. So their role is stand firm and see the salvation. Look beyond the circumstances. Don't forget they have chariots, but you have the Lord. Something far greater than what they could ever do. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Actually, the verbiage there in Hebrew is a little bit more terse. What it literally says is, the Lord will fight for you. You silent. Two words. If I could sum that up, the Lord will fight for you. Shut up. <laughs> That's, you know, it's, it's nice and pastorly and, and wonderful at the beginning. Stand firm, all this, and then shut up. Just be quiet. We've got this under control. The Lord will fight for you. So then the next thing that, that, that Moses writes is alarming, isn't it? The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Wait, why is Moses getting rebuked? He just turned to the congregation and said, y'all be cool. Chill. It's going to be all right. And then he turns to God and goes, why are you crying out to me? I don't. I didn't. We don't know. So that, that's um, one of the commentators said this is one of the most confusing and, and discussed verses in the Old Testament is why did Moses get zapped? I think it's pretty clear. What's Moses' role? He is representing Israel to God. That's what his role is here is he's representing them. 
So just as their elected head, even though they didn't vote for him, he, he, is, he gets all the, the pluses and all the minuses. So when the people mess up, Moses is representing them, he's going to take some of the rebuke from God on that. Um, we have elected heads here, right? Whether we want them or not, we have certain representatives in our political system. And they represent us. Even if we totally disagree with them, they represent us. It's a similar thing here. Moses is representing the people. So when God rebukes Moses, he doesn't kill him or you know, turn him to a pillar of salt or anything. He just rebukes him. Hey, tell him it's okay. Stop. And then he reminds him, why do you cry for me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And they're looking at a big, huge body of water and going, forward. You sure about that? Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. What has been happening in all the plagues? Moses' staff and Moses' hand. Aaron's staff and Aaron's hand. And they have worked wonders. So we're just seeing more of the same. Now go do that again and divide the sea that the people of Israel may go through on muddy ground, on knee-deep water, on dry ground. He's not just parting the waters, he's drying the land before them. So that's what I want you to do. So who, who parted the waters? Did Moses do it because he raised his hand and his staff and therefore the waters obeyed him? Did, 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 it, was it a natural thing? Because later we're going to find out it was a strong east wind divided the waters. Now, ultimately, it's God. God uses stuff. He made a lot of stuff. Look around the universe, there's plenty of stuff. God uses stuff. So sometimes he uses people. And he can tell Moses, go do this, because I want the people to see a representation that this is not just a freak of nature that the wind just happened to kick in on that day. I want you to go stand out and be the presence for me and do this thing. And so that's what he did. He goes out and he'll go out and, and raise his hands. But God then continues, that's not the deliverance. That's the escape, but that's not the, the deliverance yet. I will harden the hearts of the, the Egyptians so they go in after them, and I will get my glory, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Again, we'll come back to that in the end. The getting his glory. So that's the plan, Moses. You tell the people, start marching forward, and then you stretch out your hand and watch the water part in front of them. Now, before we do that, we have to contain or deal with the Egyptians. The angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. So the angel of the Lord is accompanying them on this road. He had been in front of them, leading them, showing them away. Suddenly, he gets up and he moves behind them. Because who's behind him? The Egyptians. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. I think that's saying the same thing. I don't think that's the angel went and then you see the pillar move. I think he's saying the angel is the pillar and they both move and they move and, and that's the representation of it. And they stood behind him coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And here's the amazing part. And there was a cloud and the, there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming to the other. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night. Um, how does darkness light up the night? Isn't it by definition not light? Isn't that what darkness is? This is just one of those miraculous things. If you ever thought the pillar of cloud was a natural phenomenon, it just blew that theory away. There is no way this is a natural phenomenon. So the NIV translates this. It says, 
Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. The uh, NAS says, there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night, similar to the ESV. And the King James says, and it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. And, and when you look at the Hebrew, it's a little murky there. Um, it, it has these, but it doesn't say which these this is. These, that is. Anyway, there's a cloud standing there. And on one side, it's darkness. So the Egyptian army is standing there, and they can't see. It's, it's darkness in front of them. And on the other side, it's this bright burning light illuminating the path through the sea so that Israel could go through the night. Because you don't move two million people in like 10 minutes, right? It, it lit the night up so that they could travel through the sea by night. So just naturalistically speaking, stand on the other side of that real quick, and you see this wall of darkness. And then the other side of that, the edges of it, is bright light. You can't see. You, there's no physical way for you to see to penetrate that light. So even if they could see light, they couldn't see what was going on over there. So what happened was the angel of the Lord stood between Israel and Egypt and contained Israel. I mean, contained Egypt and said, you may not move. You're stuck. You're just going to stand here until I'm ready to let you go. So, at, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Israel is moving away. Egypt is not moving at all. So that's the picture. That's what's happening. This pillar that's supposed to lead them is also defending them. So as they're drawing near to the shore, Moses stretches out his hand, and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So some of the theories are that this was a shallow spot in the sea, and there was a sandbar, and the east wind drove the waters back, and so they traveled across the sandbar in the middle of the sea. Um, kind of like, you remember Hurricane Katrina and what it did to uh, New Orleans? New Orleans, parts of New Orleans are below sea level, and there's a seawall holding it up. When, her, when Katrina came in, the winds were pushing the water, and so it overwhelmed, it swept over the seawalls and flooded the city. So the idea here is that wind is pushing and moving that water and opening it up. Again, we still have to deal with an army drowning in it, so if it's just a sandbar, that doesn't help. Um, but have you ever seen a wind part? It says it drove back the sea, but it also says it parted it. So maybe what's happening is God supernaturally drew the waters apart and the wind blew through in the east wind and dried out the land so that they would walk on dry land. Maybe that's what's going on. I don't, I'm not sure. The point is, what we'll hear from the rest of the story is this is not just a, a strong east wind at this time of year. It happened because Moses raised his hands. Moses raised his hands because God told him to raise his hands. It is the Lord who parted the sea. So then the other thing it says is, is the water being like a wall to them on their left and right. Um, so if you believe the, the wind just parted the waters, then it's a wall to them in that it was the, the Egyptian army couldn't travel through that. So even though it wasn't like vertical walls like the Ten Commandments kind of picture, well, you know, it was still a wall. He's like, yeah, that doesn't seem to fit the language here. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Psalm 78, 13 says, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. That doesn't sound like it's just too muddy for chariots to get through. It sounds like this wall, these walls stood up like a heap of, of dirt on each side of them. Um, 
As a matter of fact, when Moses sings his song in the next chapter, he says, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, and the, deep, uh, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. So this is how they go out with this water standing up, parted through the sea as they walk through it. Um, Dan and I were talking last week about the Prince of Egypt, that cartoon. It, it has its issues and, and there's some problems in it, but when they pass through the sea, it's just beautiful. There's these big, huge walls of water, and every once in a while you see lightning flash and a, and a whale swims past or a giant fish comes by. And you're just like, wow. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? That's, I, that's the picture I have of this, of just whatever it is. But also, something else that really is intriguing here is as they depart Egypt, as they start on their new life away from Egyptian slavery, water stands up like a heap and they pass through it. When Joshua will finally lead them to where they're supposed to be in Joshua 3.16, the priests will take up the, uh, the um, Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. There are no priests yet. They don't exist. There is no Ark of the Covenant. There are no Ten Commandments to put in the Ark. But when those things exist, the priests will step into the river Jordan, and as soon as their foot hits the water, it says the waters will stand up like a heap and just run right upstream and hold right there. Can you imagine having no idea that the, the uh, um, Israelites are in the area and you come up to the Jordan to go fishing and there's a big, tall heap of water? You go, the heck is that? I've never seen it do that before. That's, that's how they are led out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. That's how they're led into the promised land. The fulfillment of the covenant is with water standing up in heaps. So that's the picture that we get of them. The Egyptians then decide, now's the time, man. So the, the pillar has moved. The Egyptians can see what's going on. And for some reason, they decide it's a good idea to charge into the water with water standing up like a heap. I think what it was was they were just so fired up. They were just so angry that they had to charge in. Now, you have to be careful because I assumed that Pharaoh died in this flood. But what it actually says is the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. It doesn't say Pharaoh went with them. And in good ancient Near East battle tactics, the king would march out. He would be like the, the figurehead. He would be like the rallying point. This is who we're doing this for. This is our great leader. And so he would go to the battle, but he wouldn't go charging out in the front lines very often. Most often, more often than not, he would hang back and kind of help direct the battle. And then when it got to the point where they were about to win, then he'd charge in and look all victorious. So Pharaoh is probably standing up on the hill watching his army. Go get those, Egypt Go get those Israelites. Take them out. Um, it's one of my good jokes about the difference between the Air Force and the Army or the Marines. In the Army or the Marines, the officers are standing in the back with binoculars looking, going, yeah, take that hill. Okay, that didn't work. Take that hill. Yeah, that didn't work either. The enlisted go trotting out. In the Air Force, the enlisted go, okay, sir, here's your aircraft. We put some bombs on there for you. There's some fuel. The bad guys are generally in that direction. We'll catch you when you get back. And we send our officers into battle. So this is classic Army, Marine kind of thing. The officers are in the back going, they're over there. Go get them. Um, there is one thing that gets close to kind of saying that Pharaoh might have died, and that's Psalm 136, 15. It says that God overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. So it kind of sounds like he overthrew Pharaoh in the sea, but if Pharaoh is simply represented by his army, that, that could be the same thing. So it's not clear, but I don't think Pharaoh died in it. There's no Egyptian Pharaoh that we know of that has a tomb with no mummy in it. We never found the body because they drowned or something like that. 
So um, I don't think Pharaoh died in that. But it says that um, they did that. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. Wow, that's a loaded sentence right there. Uh, in the morning watch, the morning watch was probably 2 a.m. to dawn. So this is uh, Israel has been marching through there all night. As the sun is beginning to come up, um, God looks down from the pillar. So who, who is this pillar? What does this pillar represent? So far, it has been a pillar of fire and, and, uh, and, and cloud. The angel of the Lord has been the pillar. And now we hear God himself looks down from the pillar. So we'll come back to the pillar also. There, that's a pretty significant theological issue. But he looks down on the Egyptian forces and threw the forces into panic. You know, the first thing I thought of when I read that this time um, was... That sounds a lot like Babel, doesn't it? The Lord came down. He looked at the tower they were building, and he threw them into confusion. He confused their languages. So this is kind of that same picture. Isn't it funny that Moses wrote both of these things? Similar discussions. But he throws them into confusion. So this greatest army in the world, this most disciplined, heavily armored military, is charging through this parted water in the Red Sea, and suddenly they get confused. The Lord cast them into confusion. And it says he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. So if we just go with them, there's no reason to panic at this point. Maybe as the sun came up, they got a glimpse at the water standing up on each side and go, oh my gosh, what are we doing? What on earth were we thinking? So they, they wind up, whatever it was, they wind up in a panic. And then verse 25 says, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. So the most advanced military technology in the world suddenly can't work. It drives heavily. In other words, it's like you overloaded it, and now the darn thing won't steer. But the, the question is that clogging the wheels is kind of an odd thing to, to translate. It's kind of hard to figure out what it means they clog the wheels. Because don't forget, Israel passed over on dry ground, didn't they? So it's not like mud is clogging their wheels. Also. Two million people just walked across this same path, plus all their animals. That dirt, if it was dry and now packed, it would be like packed like the 14 freeway, kind of hard, because you've had so much traffic over it. So they're driving, it would, it, it would seem to be that this would be the perfect driving condition for a chariot. Like on a paved road, man, we can go forever. But something happens and it clogs their wheels. There's, there's non-Hebrew versions of the Old Testament that instead of saying clog, they say, turn aside or remove. So something happened to the wheels. They stopped working correctly. They, they, they don't function correctly. And now the chariots won't run right. And so they're confused. They're in a panic. Their machinery isn't working. And so they yell, let us flee from before Israel. Before Israel. You know what they see of Israel at this point? The back end as they're walking away. And they say, let's flee before Israel. Why? The Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians. They have been the most military, the most advanced military power in the world has just been overcome because the Lord fights for them. They have no way out. And so as they're scrambling, as they're, they're in this chaos trying to get turned around, and, and you know, how do you turn a military column? It's not that easy. Um, it's, it's probably, you know, so many wide chariots and there's people and there's all this other stuff. And so the front stops and the back piles into them. And so this is the kind of chaos going in the middle of the ocean with piles of water on each side. And so they're going to try to get out of this. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, their chariots and their horsemen. So they're scrambling in the middle of this and all of a sudden Moses raises his hand and that water just starts coming back. It just starts moving back to its normal course is what it says when the morning approached. And the Egyptians fled into it. They fled into it. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but whatever was coming at them, instead of running away, trying to catch up to the, the uh, Israelites on the other side, they were so confused, they were so terrified, they ran into the mess. And the water overwhelmed them, returned, and it covered them all. It says, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had brought into the sea, not one of them remained. None of them got out of this. But the people of Israel, I think this is kind of looking back and saying, don't forget, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their left and on their right. So they just waltz through. They, they walk right out. That's what verse 29 is just kind of a reminder of what God had done for them. And that's their deliverance. They are now freed from Egypt. So the last part says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So because God delivered them, they were brought into an impossible, an actual impossible situation. And God delivered them. The response is, they believed in the Lord and they trusted his servant, Moses. So what's the story ultimately about? Well, the part I skipped, <laughs> obviously. Because I've said before, when God speaks, that's the point of the story, right? God spoke in this. When God speaks, that's the most important thing. That's, that's the central thing. When God repeats himself, that's the heart of the matter. And so when God spoke, he actually repeated himself three times in this section. And what he said in verses 4, 17, and 18 is, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. So what does it mean for God to get glory over Pharaoh and his host? Um, in Hebrew, glory, the word glory there is, it's a verb, but it's passive. Receive glory, not take, but receive glory. And it's also what's called reflexive. And a reflexive verb kind of folds back in on itself. So that first verb could be, I will receive glory, because he's talking about himself. And then the word over is not in there. The, the, the preposition that's used is in, at, or with. So you might say something along the lines of, I, I will receive glory at Pharaoh or in Pharaoh, something along those lines. It's a difficult verse to translate. So the New, Amer the, uh, New International Version says, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh. So they hit that reflexive part for myself. The New American Standard says, I will be honored through Pharaoh. So it takes glory and uses it as honor, but through Pharaoh. Uh, King James says, um, I will be honored upon Pharaoh. So that's kind of a different way to say it, but King James says some things that are strange. And then again, our version says, I will get glory over Pharaoh. I don't think any of them are wrong. I think we're grasping at this because when you do a translation from one language to the next, uh, you don't just go word for word and then leave it at that. You've got to make it make sense in the new language. And so we're grasping for something here. We're reaching for something. How is it that God will get glory over Pharaoh or through Pharaoh or at Pharaoh? 
how will he get glory from that? And that's the hard part to understand. Um, one of the things I think we need to be careful of is it would be tempting to say, well, God got glory over Pharaoh by killing him. Well, I'm not sure Pharaoh died. And second of all, that's not how God gets glory. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So it's not like God is most glorified when people are slaughtered. That's a sad byproduct of what's happening. So actually, what happens here is in, even in the text we're looking at, God explains what it means by he will get glory through, over, or from Pharaoh. The very next sentence in that is he says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I will demonstrate my power, and in demonstrating my power, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's how he will get his glory. So what, what's going on with him getting his glory by them knowing that he is the Lord? Well, John Piper is the master of God's glory. There's no escaping it. I'm not going to try to reinvent the, the uh, chariot wheel here. Piper summed it up perfectly. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So as the Egyptians look and go, Yahweh is God then he is most glorified. That's where he gains his glory. When Israel goes, we thought we were sunk. We thought we were stuck. And yet, look what God did. Look at how awesome he is. We put our faith in God. Then God is most glorified. That's how God gains his glory over them, is in the deliverance of his people. So what is God's glory? What, what do we mean by God will receive glory? He will gain glory in that. Does it mean that he has a deficiency of glory and that when he does these things and people like him, then the glory meter will go up to where it should be at full? That's not the case. God has glory. God is glorious whether we recognize it or not. But when we see his glory, when we see the beauty, the wonderful nature of who he is and we delight in him, then he receives more glory as we recognize what it is as we see it more and more. So Piper was explaining this, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. He points to Isaiah chapter six. In the year that the Lord, or I'm sorry, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his holiness, his glory. God's holiness is his intrinsic nature, his utter difference, his utter otherness. And the earth, when he is recognized as holy, 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 the earth is filled with his glory is filled with the recognition of who he actually is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is most glorified when we see that, when we recognize that that is who he is. So remember what, God's, or what Moses said in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see, you shall never see again. The world is filled 
with God's glory, and we're called to see, to open our eyes, to look, to see it. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens and the uh, the, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, the sky above proclaim his handiwork. This world is filled to the brim with the glory of God. That's why Pastor Moses tells us, fear not, stand firm, see, see. It's not just see our deliverance, it's at least see our deliverance. But in our deliverance, what we are called to see is the glory of God. And when we see the glory of God, we yell with the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because that's what his deliverance has wrought for us. That's what he's brought for us. That's what he's done for us. The result of our deliverance is that God will be glorified. Verse 31, the end of that section, so the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. That was the nature of the deliverance. They're beginning to see his glory. Um, when I looked up the word glory in the Bible, I just typed it in at the beginning of the search. It's one time in Genesis, and it is Jacob talking about his own glory. This is the first time God's glory is mentioned in the Bible, specifically God's glory, unless Jacob means by his glory God. But this is the first time it's, it's absolutely clear this is his glory. In the deliverance of his people, God's glory is made manifest. So how does that relate to us? How do, we, how, do we, how do we connect with this? Well, first of all, we're not done. We're not done with this episode. Chapter 15 carries it forward. What is chapter 15? If you turn the page, look. It's a big, huge poem. Moses' song. The response to the deliverance, the, the response to getting a glimpse of God's holiness, the response to getting a glimpse of God's glory is worship. Let's stop and sing. We've just gone through the Red Sea. Everybody, let's stop and sing for a while. Let's praise God for what he's done for us. So how does it bring, bring that to us now? How does it connect with us? Where do we plug into this? Well, you got to see Jesus is all over this. He is all over this because of the cloud, because of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. What did, I, what did we say so far the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was? It was the angel of the Lord. It was God himself looked down from there. But what is it? Like if you walked up and put your hand on it, what would it be? It would be a pillar of cloud. It was a physical, tangible, real representation standing right in front of the people of Israel. It was a pillar of cloud. And at night, it was a pillar of fire so they could see. It, it wasn't some manifestation in their brain. It was an actual, tangible, physical thing that stood before them. And it was God. And it was the angel of the Lord. Who does that sound like? Jesus himself is the physical manifestation of God in this world. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Speaking of a physical human being, somebody you could walk up and touch, somebody that lepers would hang on to, someone that soldiers would drive nails into. And what the Bible tells us is, this is God. And yet, God is spirit. He has no body. But Jesus is the physical representation of God in the world. Just like that cloud is a physical representation of God traveling with Israel. Jesus himself led his people out of Egypt. Jude, chapter, or Jude verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you fully knew once, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. 
So as this pillar is going with them, as this physical representation of, of God in the desert is going with them, it's leading them out of Egypt. Jesus led them out of Egypt. That's what that is. Jesus himself is the angel of the Lord. We get this, remember Jude verse 5, and now listen to Judges chapter 2 verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. He said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. Who brought them out of Egypt? Jesus brought them out of Egypt. So Jesus is that angel of the Lord because the angel of the Lord claimed to have brought them out of Egypt. And you remember the burning bush, he is Yahweh. He is I am. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to the Pharisees, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So as God looks out from the pillar, Jesus looks out from the pillar because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. He is the darkness to those who don't believe, and he is the light to those who do. I think the best representation of that is when you, when you ask Jesus, Lord, why do you teach in parables? They're really cool stories, but they're really confusing sometimes. Luke chapter 8, verse, beginning in verse 9. And, he, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for, those who are in, uh, but for others they are in parables, so that, quote, seeing they may, see, may not see, and hearing they may, they may not understand. He is darkness to those who don't believe. He is a, a, a confusing. He is a quandary. He is an, absolutely not what we expected to those who don't believe. But to us who believe, to those who put your trust in him, he's light in the darkness. You can see and make sense of everything. He is the darkness and the light at the same time. And he stands between his people and their enemies. That's what, that's what the pillar did, didn't he? Stood between Israel and their enemies, Romans 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation. Why? Because we're in Christ. He stands between us and condemnation. He stands between us and who, those who would bring condemnation. He keeps us safe as, as he stands between us and our enemies. And then finally, he leads us. He leads this church. He just does. Verse uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 2 14 but thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal possession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere who leads us God leads us who through Jesus just like a pillar we have Jesus leading us so you can't get away from this our deliverance is tied to Israel's deliverance. Our deliverance is a greater deliverance. It is a bigger deliverance. It is more than just getting out of slavery. And at the center of Egypt's, or Israel's deliverance from Egypt is Jesus. At the center of ours is Jesus. It's the same thing. We get the same thing. Now, one thing that I have to mention, and I'll try to make it quick, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've mentioned before, 1 Corinthians 10 is my paradigm for understanding Exodus. I think that's what Paul is doing is he's interpreting the Exodus for us. Um, right at the beginning, though, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So some people have, throughout the church history, this has been used to justify different positions on baptism, um, all, all kinds of different uh, takes on it. Uh, I just want to make a couple of passing uh, thoughts on this, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, end the sermon. First of all, in the New Testament, 
Every time baptism is referred to in the Old Testament, it's a water event. They passed through the sea and baptized into Moses. In Peter, Peter says, how many went into the boat? Eight, and they were baptized. It always involves water. So to my Westminster Presbyterian friends who see baptism tied to circumcision, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. It doesn't work here. Besides, they go through the sea on dry ground, so there's no water on any of them. Um, there's also um, an idea that uh, uh, being baptized into Moses meant this great theological thing. The problem is this is the only time it's ever said. The, the rabbis never talked about being baptized into Moses. This is a unique Pauline thing. And so when we say, what does it mean to be baptized into Moses? What we've got to say is, I don't know for sure. I'm not positive what it means to be baptized into Moses. But I think we get a hint if we just remember the story we just read, because what happened at the very end? They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. As they passed through the sea, when they got to the other side, then they believe in him. Now they begrudgingly, and it's not going to always be pretty, but they begin to believe and trust Moses, though they will gripe at him in the future. So if you're in church leadership, they believe in the Lord, they believe in you, and then they're going to gripe at you. I mean, it's just what we do. We grouse at each other. So I think when it says that they were baptized in a moment, Moses, I think they were saying they submitted to and began to follow his lead. That was the picture of that. So I just wanted to throw that in there uh, because it's going to come up. You know, that, that's one of the questions that are part of it. Um, and it wouldn't be fair to just skip a New Testament verse that talks about exactly what we looked at, too. Um, so next week, what we're going to do is we're, we'll look at chapter 15, or most of chapter 15, and that is Israel's response to the deliverance they've just experienced. And it is praise. And so when you reflect, as you're thinking about our deliverance, what Jesus has done for us, it should never result in pride. It should never result in looking down our nose at those who don't. And why don't you get it? It should always resolve, first and foremost, in praise. That's our proper response. And then what 2 Corinthians said was, and then we are the fragrance as we are led. So if we do it in pride and in arrogance and looking down our nose, that's, not, that's a fragrance. Um, it's not a pleasant one. But if we show who Jesus is by the way that we are grateful, by the way that we're walking, that is a pleasant fragrance. And people will go, I want to know what's up with those people because they're weird in a good way. So that's, that's where we're going to go, is next week we will worship with Moses and the crew out in the desert. Let's pray.